Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Paul Monies has been following what could be the only statewide ballot initiative appearing in November's election, State Question 820. It asks voters to approve recreational marijuana for Oklahomans 21 and older, but the state question still faces several hurdles to make the November ballot. Paul, tell us what happened this week on State Question 820. Yeah, so this week the organizers of the 820 campaign got notification from the Secretary of State's office that they had met the threshold and exceeded the threshold for signatures to place the initiative petition on the ballot. And how was the signature verification process different from one used for, uh, you know, previous state questions like the the Medicaid expansion, medical marijuana, and the others? Yeah, so this is the first time that an outside vendor um, has been hired to verify the signatures, and they're basically looking at signatures on each sheet and checking them with the voter registration rolls and several data points like names and addresses, zip codes. And so the campaign turned in about uh, 164,000 signatures back on July 5th. Uh, That process has now come out, and they've certified at least 117,000, and they only needed 94,000 to make the ballot. Now, this uh, new process was supposed to be faster and more accurate, Uh, was it? Well, there's probably more accurate, but it was not faster by any stretch. And in fact, the campaign has said that um, the average time for the last few ballot initiatives to make the ballot uh, since 2016 has been about three weeks. This one took about twice that long, and this was supposed to be a new and modernized process. So what did the organizers of the Yes on 820 campaign uh, have to say about that process? Well, they said it was um, having an outside vendor do it for the first time kind of set them back a few weeks, and that has caused some ripple effects in terms of the the complications to make the actual November ballot. So what what has to happen next for for this state question to get on the ballot. So with the Secretary of State's office certifying the signatures, it now goes to the Supreme Court for something just called a sufficiency test. They kind of do a kind of a, a review of it, but they don't do anything in depth. And, you know, they've got a couple of days that they usually make to do that. And then that then starts a publication period where they have to um, notify uh, in state newspapers that this ballot is coming. That opens up a 10-day window, a business day window. So it's effectively two weeks for people to challenge the signature verification process itself. Now, there's some disagreement on what the state's deadline is to print ballots for the November election, isn't there? That's right, yeah. The the, uh, campaign itself um, has talked to the election board, and the election board has has told the governor that they need to get certification and everything done by this Friday, practically, or Monday, uh, which would be the 29th of August. And the campaign has filed a, a... a petition that the Oklahoma Supreme Court basically saying that that's kind of an artificial deadline. Now, the election board says that they need um, at least 45 days to print ballots and mail them to overseas voters, and that's partly why they're saying that the August 29th is their drop-dead date for, for ballots to be printed. So what neighboring states will be voting uh, on a similar proposal in November? 
So, yeah, whatever the Supreme Court decides in Oklahoma on this one uh, will kind of be the key if that ends up on the ballot. But already in neighboring states like Missouri, they've got a recreational ballot proposition on their November ballot. And in Arkansas, they had some complications there, but basically um, Arkansas Supreme Court has ruled that that will be on the ballot and they'll kind of figure out some verification issues that were coming in late on that one at the end. But voters will get a chance to vote on that one, I think, in Arkansas, too. All right. So with those those deadlines coming up, right? Uh, can can you play bookie? Can you play odds maker here? What are what are the chances we see a twenty on this November's ballot? Well, it's a pretty narrow path, at least um, on the official deadlines that the election board has set out. Uh, now the campaign, uh, the S and eight twenty people have filed with the Supreme Court. Um, to try and get them uh, to, to say that there is plenty of time, you know, 45 days before the November election is probably sometime late September. Um, and so there is some wiggle room there, but it's really going to be up to the court itself. Um, the election board has stood pretty fast on its deadlines when it needs to have ba- ballots printed for the November election. And, of course, we're work- we've got the primary elections this week in Oklahoma, so those results will be certified by the end of the week, and we'll know exactly who will be voting on the November candidate elections by then, but this is still kind of up in air on the state question 820. And if it doesn't appear on the November ballot, uh, what happens then? Well, then the governor could set a special election date um, sometime next year or even as late as uh, 2024. Um, so there's a little bit of – the governor has some power in terms of setting that election date. It does have to be a statewide election, um, and there's some disagreement on where that, that can be in 2023 or would have to wait till 2024. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, all Paul's coverage of State Question A20 and all his other investigative work related to state government on our website – oklahomawatch.org. In her latest story, race and equity reporter Ari Fife explores the effect of a nationwide program that allowed all students to eat school meals free uh, for more than two years. The end of the program could cause more students to struggle to get consistent and nutritious meals. Ari, can you talk about uh, why universal uh, school meal waivers were introduced in the first place? Yeah, so the waivers were part of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which was a bill passed at the beginning of the pandemic and intended to address the negative effects of the of the pandemic um, in a bunch of different areas. And one of the things that the bill did was it... Um, allowed the U.S. Department, it created a a program through the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, to, that allowed all schools to provide free meals to all students during the pandemic. And why did that program end? Uh, What, what, What's it going to mean for schools? So that's a pretty controversial topic in Congress, apparently, depending on who you ask. Um, There are a couple different versions of what happened, but the, the gist of it is that the Biden administration introduced an omnibus spending bill in the early months of this year, and the waivers weren't on it. And because of that, they expired on June 30th. And so for schools that aren't continuing universal free meals through some kind of program, they'll have to return to free and reduce meal applications like they did before the pandemic. Well, not all students will feel the effects of this program uh, expiring in the same way. What what groups do experts think uh, might be uniquely affected? 
Yeah, so there are a lot of different answers. Um, one that was brought to my attention are families that wouldn't qualify for free and reduced meals if they had to apply, but could still benefit from not having to pay. Um, another one are families that have limited internet access and might struggle to fill out an application on a school's website, for example. And the group that I focused on for this story were non-English speaking families who might struggle with the language barrier in applying or might hesitate to apply altogether because of cultural differences. Well, do schools have any options to continue uh, those universal free meals, uh, even though the federal program has has come to an end? Yeah, so there are a couple different programs that kind of target different kinds of low-income schools. The program that I focused on in my story is called the Community Eligibility Provision, which is for schools that have relatively high numbers of students that qualify automatically for free meals. And in my research for this story, I learned that there are a lot of districts across the state that um, qualify for this provision but aren't participating. Well, what what are the requirements for the community eligibility provision? So in order to participate, um, a school or a group of schools have to meet a benchmark of 40% of the student population that automatically qualifies for free meals. And to automatically qualify, students can be in a number of different categories. A few examples are they could be on food assistance programs like SNAP or TANF, they could be part of a migrant family, or they could be a runaway from their family. So what's what's keeping eligible schools from participating? So I talked to a couple dif- different districts and learned that it comes down to a financial decision in a lot of cases. Public schools get some federal reimbursement for every meal that they provide students. And for the community eligibility provision, um, reimbursement is decided through a formula that lumps all students in either an automatically qualifying category or a paid category. The reimbursement for um, students who automatically qualify for free meals is much higher than for students who can pay for their own meals. And... So I spoke to some districts who made the 40% benchmark, but were very, were on the cusp of not making it. And so they were worried that that relatively low percentage would mean that they'd get um, lower reimbursement than they would if they weren't on the program. Well, uh, you talked to a lot of people for this story. Are Is anybody out there thinking that providing... Uh, universal free meals could become doable for more schools? Mm -hmm. So I talked with the deputy director at the Food Research and Action Center, and um, she she gave a couple solutions for schools and then a couple uh, suggestions for statewide leadership. One of the suggestions that she gave to schools was making sure to consistently update their data on automatically qualifying students by working with hubs for some of the services that students can automatically qualify if they participate in. For example, those food assistance programs. Um, On a statewide level, many states are now a part of a pilot program 
that counts Medicaid as a qualifier for free meals. Oklahoma is not a part of that, and she said that that's something that they could consider. All right. Well, thanks, Ari. You can read Ari's uh, coverage of the universal free school meals uh, and all her other work on race and equity on our website at oklahomawatch.org. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. He has been looking into the living conditions for some of the Afghan refugees who have resettled here in Oklahoma. Lionel, before we get into the living conditions, can you tell us what housing looks like for Afghan refugees, generally speaking? Yeah, so uh, there have been over 1,800 refugees that have been resettled across Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and Stillwater by uh, Catholic Charities, Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. Some of them live in apartments, others in rental homes. Uh, the folks, Some of the folks in Stillwater live in international graduate student housing. And uh, just to kind of lay it out, there are two main issues. The living conditions themselves, and then the end of some timely federal pandemic relief money, which has been helping pay for their rents for the time being. Okay, so uh, let's talk about the living conditions. Tell us about that. So I'm going to preface by saying that many of the apartments and rental homes that Afghan refugees live in are in pretty good shape. Uh, the rents are expensive, but they live in a clean and safe environment. Uh, but there are some apartment complexes that have issues. Uh, one Afghan gentleman whose apartment I visited on the northwest side of Oklahoma City for an afternoon uh, showed me bugs crawling over his rug and inside his cupboards, his cupboards, uh, the water damage from his leaky ceiling in his bathroom. Um, you know, he mentioned that when he's going to sleep at night, uh, not only do they not have air conditioning in that unit, uh, but his children have woken him up on multiple occasions with those bugs that get way worse at night, crawling on their faces and in their mouths and ears. Well, what what's the extent of uh, those substandard living conditions? Yeah, so there, there are six main apartment complexes that house Afghans in Oklahoma City. Uh, two of them are on the northwest side of town, and they're really in this dilapidated condition that I described. Uh, that's a total of 56 families in Oklahoma City uh, that I've been made aware of by Catholic charities that live in these conditions. Uh, in Tulsa, there are similar conditions. There are at least 45 families, mostly concentrated in one place there, that are um, paying pretty high rents and on top of the, the living conditions. Okay, so about, we think, maybe 63 of, uh, of the families um, altogether. Okay, what, what federal funding were you talking about? Yeah, so most families have their living arrangements paid for through March 2023 because they get help from Community Cares Partners, which is an organization that uh, was started in, in 2020 to contract with the federal government and provide rent and utility assistance to Oklahomans. Um, Catholic Charities got some of the Afghan refugees, since there's no citizenship qualifications for that, they were able to apply for that Community Cares Partners money, get some help, um, and it lasts for 18 months. They end in, in uh, that funding pays through March 2023 because of when some of them started arriving. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. What's the significance of that particular date? Yeah, so... Again, 18 months is the total number of, of months that community cares partners will pay for rent. Um, normally, for the average Oklahoman or Oklahoma household, that's three, men, three months of back pay and 15 months forward. But the Afghan evacuees that arrived 
don't have any months of back pay that they have to cover, so they just get the 18 months ahead. Okay, so uh, of those families living in those uh, substandard conditions, uh, is anybody doing anything about that? Anybody taking any kind of action? Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, you know, Catholic Charities has been in charge of the resettlement. They've partnered with a number of organizations, uh, the Sparrow Project, YWCA, uh, the Afghan Legal Network, which was also started in response to the the Afghan refugee resettlement. Um, And then they recently, you know, a year after the the Taliban took over Kabul, they got uh, Governor Kevin Stitt to tour uh, two apartments with issues uh, just on August 19th. Uh, He said that, you know, Oklahoma can do better but that there is room for them here and there's a need for them in, in the state's workforce. Uh, Patrick Raglow, <laughs> who leads Catholic Charities, said some of the families have already been moved out of inhospitable units and relocated. Um, others have had window ACs in various rooms. So uh, talk about the end of the federal money uh, coming in. How's that going to affect things? Yeah, so this is a bit more tricky. There remains a, a shortage of affordable rental units, um, for the sizes of, of many of the Afghan families. And so once that money is out, um, it Community Cares Partners is going to stop accepting applications on the 1st of September, um, which means that n- no Oklahomans will be able to get that money. They've already set those 18 months aside for Afghan families. But once those 18 months run out, then those families, which typically have one breadwinner, will have to cover their rents without that federal help. And also whatever other things they have to pay for, phone, um, car insurance, you know, everything that the average Oklahoman has to cover these days. Okay, well, thanks, Lionel. You can uh, read Lionel's coverage of the Afghan refugees and their living situations here in Oklahoma, along with all his other investigative work on race and equity at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.